The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. The year is 1985, and this is episode 4. This episode covers the months of July through October. It's Sunday, July 14th. At 5 p.m. London time, a television director flipped a switch and the world's first transatlantic rock concert was complete. Hello, America. Welcome to the world. Have a great day. Have as good a day as we're having. And please, please, give us as much money as we know you have. 72,000 people at Wembley Stadium. In all 170 countries were plugged in, an audience, some thought, of a billion and a half people. Quantel. Tokyo. Most of the time it worked. A few times it didn't. Oh, what's gone wrong? We've lost your pictures, Japan. The broadcast was joined by bands from as far away as Australia. Even the Russians unveiled a rock group today called Autograph and managed to dig at Star Wars. And it's nice to know that for a change, high tech is contributing to something positive. Singer Phil Collins had perhaps the longest day. After performing at Wembley, he boarded the Concorde and flew to Philadelphia to perform another set there. If you weren't watching BBC Two, Phil Collins went on stage at Wembley together with Sting and they did some magnificent numbers. Then what happened was Phil Collins stepped off the stage into a helicopter, flew to Heathrow Airport, got on board Concorde and then flew off to America. A lot of improbable things happened today and a few improbable things didn't. Three former Beatles and Julian Lennon did not play together, as some in the British press predicted. But an Arab sheikh got on the phone and pledged a million and a half dollars. And Bob Geldorf, a knockabout Irishman whose dream this was, was being touted here for the Nobel Peace Prize. Steve Croft, CBS News, London. Paul McCartney. Whenever television comes over with those kind of pictures, you'll find people responding don't uh, and I think you know I think people are fed up of seeing those pictures and thinking what can I do about it and you never know where to send your pennies or what you can do you know because uh, obviously like uh, I remember the days of like Bangladesh when George put together a similar concert and uh, the problem was really how to get the money to the people to get it to work to translate it into food instead of it just going into some corrupt uh, government officials pocket you know George Harrison. 
It was real big, wasn't it? I mean, it, it went on a bit, and it, it, with all the satellite cover, you know, that they had covering everywhere, it was pretty impressive compared to Bangladesh. Like, it was much more low-tech in those days, but it was nice to see Geldof doing that. You know, I thought it was brilliant, really. Did you feel, do you think, maybe similar feelings that, that he felt? It's like you saw something that yeah. moved you. Okay, I have the power. Absolutely. I must well, try to help. Well, you don't really think like that. You think somebody got to be doing something, you know. Uh, and you look around, there's nobody doing anything. So you think, well, just got to get it started, you know. It's, it's a first, you know. It's never been done. And it's, uh, In what it's way a I'm... huge event. You know, it could be the start of something big. I think this isn't what's doing. I think it's within pop anyway. I think, you know, you want to look at sort of Dylan. Beatles, there's a lot of people, you know, who've been doing uh, Save the World kind of songs, All You Need Is Love, you know, and stuff like that for a long time. I think it's all there, it just needs to be awoken. He said, you've got to come on and sing, you know. And I said, oh, I can't, Bob, I haven't got a band together now. He said, well, you just sit at the piano and do your own number. How's that for a Geldof person? So that was it, you know, I just had to come. Simple as that. And what made you choose the song that you chose? He chose it. Running the whole bloody show. During the course of the day at the BBC TV Centre on Wood Lane, Paul re-records his lead vocal on Let It Be due to the original audio problems at the Wembley Arena. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be. 
Words from the Who's Pete Townsend. July 17th. In my life, my son was born. Gotta keep those love and good vibrations happening with her.
3,428 miles away on July 20th in Silverstone, England at the British Grand Prix. But there is George Harrison of Beatles fame. He's a great motor racing enthusiast. He's been and is in the Brabham pit here, seeing what goes on in uh, modern motor racing. And with his friends and mechanics there, as you look down on what is still a circuit that is damp, too damp for times to be racing. What is about motor racing that attracts you? Uh, I don't know. Just, just, I think it's all the waste of money. <laughs> Really, it's just such a, an amazing waste of money. <laughs> yeah. George Harrison, seriously, you are a serious fan. Who do you think is going to win the British Grand Prix this year? Well, I've no idea who who will win. I know who I'd like to win. Who's that? Nelson. <laughs> but, Why would uh, you like to see Nelson Piquet win the Grand Prix? He's such a nice person. And I think uh, before he becomes a film star, I'd like to see him win a few more Grand Prix. Meanwhile, towards the end of July in London, McCartney was putting together a documentary on the real Buddy Holly story. He is hoping to complete it for the 10th Buddy Holly week scheduled in September. Hold me close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. Whisper soft and true Darling, I love you
It's August, and while in London, Paul is again commissioned to write music for a film. Paul McCartney. I was asked by John Landis, the film director, to come up with some music for a film he was making called Spies Like Us. He was doing this with Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, who were the stars in it, and they wanted a play-out song at the end. Paul recorded the demo at Root Studios, his home studio in Campbelltown, Scotland. Which became the basis for the final record, Spies Like Us. is BBC Television. Now turning to television in the UK on August 6th, Cynthia Lennon appears on the TVS ITV afternoon chat show Regrets with host John Stapleton. Thank you very much indeed. Hello and welcome once again to Regrets, where today we have as our special guest a lady who in more ways than one lived with a legend. For she was married to a man whose genius helped create a musical and social revolution. A man for whom the whole world mourned when he died at the hands of an assassin. He was, of course, John Lennon. She is his first wife, Cynthia Lennon. Cows come home. 
it was quite incredible, wasn't it, the excitement that those four lads created? Extremely exciting. I mean, it was a wonderful time. But um, the thing is that to be at the centre of it was the most fascinating part of it, I think. I can well imagine. And we'll talk to you in some detail about that presently. But first of all, let me ask you this. I know that you and John had some fabulous times together. I know that for a long period you were both very much in love. But in view of the traumas and the dramas and in the end the tragedy that resulted, have you ever, in your most private moments, <coughs> regretted meeting John Lennon? I've never ever regretted meeting John because I didn't think about meeting John at the time. I was an art student, he was an art student, and I fell madly in love with this particular person in life. And as far as regrets are concerned now, I have no regrets now because that particular meeting with John took me through so many fantastic years. I have no regrets about meeting John. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me understand? Cause I've been in love before and I found that love was more than just holding hands. If I give my heart to you, I must be sure from the very start that you would love me more than her. If I trust in you, oh please, don't run. How did John treat it and you? I mean, because reading some of the articles I have done about you and him, I get the impression that, oddly enough, despite the sort of avant-garde image he had, the trendy John Lennon, one step ahead of everybody else in many ways, at home he was actually quite Victorian in some of his attitudes, even, dare I say it, chauvinist. Is that true? Well, he could be all those things. He, he could be Victorian, chauvinist, boring. It could be all those things. I mean, he was a person that had every facet to his personality, as we all did. But his particular 
um, exuberance or, or wit or criticism. I can't, I can't describe how he, how he is or was that I created his image was his battle against the outside to a certain extent. But at home, living with him day to day, well, when we had the time, he was just, you know, John to me. When and why did things start going wrong, Cynthia? When, I think, when they started going wrong was during the time of, and I've said this before, but during the time of the creeping in of drugs. I think the wealth first, the adulation second, and then certain areas of people or certain people that would infiltrate into the group, because that's what happens. <laughs> infiltrate and if you're vulnerable, and we were all vulnerable at that time, uh, then the pressures get too strong, too big. And that's, I feel, is when, as far as John and I were concerned, that was when it, when it all started to disintegrate. Is it one of your regrets, then, that you couldn't do more to stop him getting involved with drugs and those infiltrators who, according to your account, were responsible, anyway, for things going wrong? I suppose my regret there, yes, definitely, would be that I wasn't strong enough to get rid of these people and to kick them out. Really, simple as that. When you look back on it, I mean, did you actually, have you since then ever said to yourself, well, if only I had, I mean, have you any regrets in that respect that perhaps you could have done a little bit more yourself to save the marriage, to keep it together? I think if only I had would have um, been
been at the time of the drugs, not the time of Yoko and I think that would have been the time because that possibly led up to that situation. This is only the way I, I saw it and feel about it. Sure. What about the other person in, in, directly involved in this situation, of course, and that's your son, Julian. What effect did Beatlemania, being John Lennon's son, have on him as a kid early on? As a child, it, it created lots of problems. I think um, he couldn't understand what was going on. I think more so when, when the divorce came about, when he was totally lost. I mean, he was born into wealth, really. He, you know, when that finished for him, he found it very difficult to come to terms with the fact that all those worldly things and friends of John's and friends of, you know, the house was full of people at that time. When we divorced, it was just Julian and I, which was a great traumatic change for him. And he went through a few problems. Such as? Well, he, he, was, he was an upset child for a while very upset and he needed a lot of care and attention. Too young really to explain anything to him. But We're going to take uh, a break there, uh, Cynthia. My nerves are breaking, the lying feelings come. 
Was John a good father after the breakup, after the, the divorce? He was becoming a good father. But there was a spell when he wasn't? There was a spell when he had to sort himself out because I think he was a bit of a child himself. He couldn't quite understand what was happening to him. His life was uh, incredibly complicated. But would you go as far as to say that during that period, for those reasons, John, to some extent anyway, neglected Julian? He pushed him out of his mind, I think, for that time, because he needed that time to come to terms with himself and what had happened to him in his life. But, I mean, eventually it came back, and they were the greatest of friends. So, presumably, on that terrible day, which all of us remember when, when John was killed, Julian, and indeed yourself, suffered a major setback, despite the fact you'd been separated, despite the fact you were remarried by that time. It must have, that must have hit you very hard. Well, I think both of us lost a friend and somebody that we, we had lived with. I mean, Julian had lost his father once already and then he lost him again. So it was devastating for him. Ever since you've been leaving me One day we would be able to chat together again, push all the Beatles um, thing in the background, push everything else in the background, and just sit as two ordinary people and chat about our son. Did it, ever, come across. did it ever cross your mind, Cynthia, that perhaps had you been able to make it work together, his fate would have been a very different one? Oh, that's, that's something I'd never know about. If, it's the good old question, if. If only, if only I'd done this, if only I'd done that. I mean, what I'm doing now is, is satisfying to me. What Julian is doing now is satisfying to him. So from all that, from that, those regrets or the tragedies or the experience that we've both had, we're both doing all right, thank you, at the moment, and it's important. <laughs>
Thank you. Good night. As Julian Lennon approaches the final days of his first tour, and Cynthia Lennon continues to promote her drawings throughout Europe, over in America, one of the most coveted catalogs in music history is sold. It was at 2.45 a.m. on August 10, 1985, that the contracts were signed, and Michael Jackson was now the new owner of the prestigious ATV music catalog after 10 months of intense, confusing, on-again and off-again negotiations. The package included the publishing rights of over 4,000 songs, including hits by Little Richard, the Pointer Sisters, and the Pretenders. But the jewel in its crown was undeniably the near full catalog of Beatles music, spanning from 1964 to the group's breakup in 1970. At 26, Jackson was already one of the most successful performers in pop music and was now also among the top 15 music publishers in the world. Paul McCartney. Somebody rang me up said, Michael Jackson's bought Northern Songs. For an agreed price of $47.5 million, the acquisition stands as the most expensive publishing purchase ever undertaken by an individual. Outbidding several other companies, a Holmes A. Court representative said at the time, quote, In the end, it came down to who could act fastest. Mr. Jackson was in a position to act. When asked how Jackson would finance the ATV acquisition, one source close to the singer laughed and replied, out of his own pocket, There's a man who plays the game of life so well. Ooh, there's such a man. His thoughts you can never tell. Ooh, and it's just the way he thought it would be. Cause the day has come for him to be free. Then he laughs, he kicks, then rolls up his sleeve. Surprising fans and many powerful music executives, this bold business move shifted Michael Jackson's public image from a once teeny bopper turned Peter Pan of pop to an out-and-out -out music mogul. Janet Holmes Accord remembers the deal her husband made. Robert Holmes Accord would sell the superstar a rare musical catalogue, including a Beatles collection. In return, Michael Jackson would fly to Perth for telethon. Robert sold him the, uh, the music catalogue that was in uh, the, the company which we, we bought in, in, U in the UK. Uh, it owned the Beatles music. It was a tough deal negotiated by Holmes Accord's right-hand man, Bert Reuter. And we had given Paul McCartney first right of refusal, but Paul didn't want it at that time, so Michael Jackson's people uh, approached us and we negotiated with him. The contract was finally signed. Although neither Jackson nor Holmes A. Cord were present, the two instead scheduled to meet for the first time that October when Michael visited Australia as a guest of Holmes A. Cord and appeared on the Channel 7 Perth Telethon. The visit wasn't just a courtesy call. Riding and breakpoint condition was that he had to come to Telethon. It was in the contract. 
a provision requested by Holmes A. Court, who owned the television station at the time. It was probably one of the simplest financing deals in history. Paul McCartney. Think of going into song publishing. And he said, I'm going to buy your songs. Yeah, sure, great. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it transpired that he did. He'd, he'd had Thriller, which was a massive album, and gave him a lot of cash. George Harrison is asked for comment. Michael Jackson owns a lot of the early catalog. Apparently he does, yeah. Funny little fella. <laughs> Throughout the rest of the month of August, Paul continues work on MPL's documentary, The Real Buddy Holly Story, which will air in an episode on the UK TV show, Arena. We used to write songs like Buddy. The very first songs that John and I wrote, we used to sag off school and go to my house and uh, sit down with guitars and... I was a You was a... You know, and all that, we just... How can you... How does he do it, you know? I love it. You know, we just try that for hours and hours. And eventually, out of it, we got a couple of little songs, you know, we got Love Me Do, which is the first beat of the Love Me Do. It's a sort of the same... It's like the same two, three chords job, you know. As August turns into September, at McCartney's Hog Hill Studios in Rye, Sussex, Paul continues work on the song Spies Like Us. London on September 4th, Mita Davis, a traffic warden who inspired Paul McCartney to write the Beatles song Lovely Rita from the LP Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, retires from the force. Paul was one of 200,000 motorists caught out by Davis during her 20-year career as a St. John's Wood meter maid officer. Mrs. Davis gave Paul a 10 shilling or 50 pence ticket after his car's meter time ran out. He came up behind me while I was writing the ticket, recalls Mita. He saw my name was Mita, laughed, and said, that would make a nice jingle. I can use that. We then chatted, and then he drove off. On September 7th, over in the UK in Ascot at Heatherwood, 
Ringo Starr, at the age of 45, becomes the first Beatle to become a grandfather when his son Zach and his wife Sarah give birth to a 7-pound, 2-ounce baby girl named Tadia Jane. Hello, grandfather. I'll lay off. In London on September 11th, Paul and Linda McCartney host the 10th annual Buddy Holly Week. To kick off the event, the couple throw a luncheon at the Memories of China at 67 Eberry Street. We had a good country band and I played the fiddle. Buddy played the guitar and he used to play the banjo song. Like Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys Bob wore my hat and played the flat top with his thumb We played them joints and had a lot of fun with the women We swigged on bootleg beer and played licks in the sun We got our picture in the paper with our eyes covered up They said our music made the kids do sin We stuck full of crazy back but then Elvis came along and oh, but just loved him. But I couldn't tell where rock and roll was coming from. But I stuck around cause someone had to play like Scotty. Joe B played the bass and J I played the drum. I grew up and had to go out and make a living I picked a slim Whitman tour and I wound up on the road And them good old boys began to make some noise around Texas And they got hot as a pistol of picking that rock and roll But that'll be the day came much too soon for Buddy was a good old boy and he had a good Christian soul. He never knocked nobody down in his life. He loved us all and he treated us right. And you know the levee ain't dry and the music didn't die. Cause Buddy Holly lives every time we play rock and roll. That's Sonny Curtis singing about his old friend, Buddy Holly. Sonny wrote the song after he'd been to see a movie called The Buddy Holly Story, which may have been a lot of laughs, but it was hardly the true story. So Sonny wrote the song to try and put the record straight. The next day on BBC Two, the arena program on Buddy Holly is aired. I've always loved Buddy's music, and he's been a big influence on me. So I wanted to make a film that would allow his family and friends to share their memories of him with us. So here it is. It's my tribute to Buddy, the real Buddy Holly story. Hope you enjoy it. On September 30th, 31 miles west of London, George Harrison, along with his friend Joe Brown, are among the many locals voicing their opposition of a proposed teardown of a local cinema. 
the Regal Cinema would be replaced with a grocery store at 33 Bell Street in Henley-on-Thames. The protest is captured by Thames News. Thousands of people who are dipping into their own pockets to keep the Regal Cinema running. 5,000 people in Henley have signed a petition to save the Regal, and many of them say they're prepared to invest in a trust to buy the cinema if that will save it. It's the only one within a 10-mile radius of here, and although it does good business, it can do even better business by being closed down and turned into a supermarket. Local residents George Harrison and Joe Brown are among those who say the Regal should stay a cinema. I've always liked cinemas, even when I was uh, a music maker, and uh, I always like to go to the cinema, and I also like conservation of you know, small towns and that. I think that's the biggest issue for me, really. If it's not making money, why don't they put somebody in, put him on a percentage and let him, don't pay him any wages. This is what happens in theatres, you know. But most cinemas do lose money. People aren't going to the cinema like they used to. Perhaps it's because of television, but they're just not going. Well, uh, it's up to well, people they still to don't have to knock it down and make it into a supermarket because they've got enough supermarket anyway. I mean, their argument is we can more buy fish and bread here. The thing is, there's some nice little uh, bread and fish shops already. We've got great bread shops, so we don't want to put them out of work, do we? It's very, very simple. We have a small cinema here, and we haven't got any anywhere else. And I want to knock it down and put another supermarket up. I mean... Right. The planning application to turn the Regal into a supermarket will be considered by South Oxfordshire District Council early next month. Christopher Rainbow for Thames News. October 1st in London, working with producer Hugh Padgham, McCartney begins overdubbing sessions at Hog Hill Studios in Rye, Sussex for his next LP.
On October 6th at Brands Hatch in Kent, England, George Harrison and Ringo Starr are spotted together at the European Grand Prix. Jackie Stewart of ABC's Wide World of Sports catches up to them. I hope you enjoy it. You, you get to many races? Oh yeah, I go to a lot of races. Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo, 1972. Brands Hatch. Bra Brands Hatch, 1985. I'm always here. <laughs> OK, Brands Hatch, the Beatles are back. Wednesday, October 9th, John Lennon would have been 45 years old today. To celebrate John's birthday, the city of New York officially opens to the public a place in New York Central Park, a small patch of land known as Strawberry Fields. Mayor Ed Koch, along with Yoko and Sean, are in attendance for the dedication. There's Madam Lennon in the white pants outfit. People applauding for her. There she goes. To present to you, Yoko Ono Lennon. Good morning. I didn't suddenly get tall. They just gave me a box to stand on. <laughs> on this day of celebration, I would like to give thanks to the 123 countries which have joined together to make this island a garden of peace and love as a growing monument to John's spirit. I am naturally in awe of the participation of so many countries, but even more so, I am deeply touched by the warm support expressed by each country in its own way. Some countries have given additional gifts which, for practical reasons, could not be part of the garden. It should also be noted that in addition to the 123 countries, there are countries in the process of sending us their letters of participation, and I am very grateful. I would like to give special thanks to Mrs. Ann Pilali. The wife of the Moroccan foreign minister for her gracious efforts in acting as an intermediary to many of the participating countries. A very persuasive intermediary at that for the past four years. Special thanks as well to Park Commissioner Henry Stern, who, as a councilman in 1981, put forth his inspiration to the council to name this acreage Strawberry Fields in honor of John Lennon. Special thanks also to Mayor Koch for giving his personal blessing to the project from its start. Special thanks to New York City and its people for allowing this garden to blossom in their space. Thank you. Finally, special thanks to the millions and millions of well-wishers all over the world for virtually willing this garden to materialize. This garden is a result of all of us dreaming together. It is our way of taking a sad song and making it better. 
I feel it is symbolic of our global future. Bless us all for sharing this time of incredible awareness and great hope. Bless us all for being on earth at the dawning of the age of wisdom and joy. May the birth of this garden be the beginning of the century of peace. May the garden give joy to our offspring for many centuries to come. Enjoy. Strawberry Fields is a living monument, a garden of peace and love in memory of John Lennon. His widow, Yoko Ono, dedicated the Central Park Meadow to New York on the same day Lennon would have turned 45. This garden is a result of all of us dreaming together. It is our way of taking a sad song and making it better. More than 120 countries contributed trees and flowers, making it a growing monument of peace and love. I'm David Goodnow, Headline News. Okay, now I've saved the best for last. Reach for the speed. Reach for the whistle, go where the rail may run. Reach for the words, reach for the story, follow the rainbow sun. It was around this time that Ringo re-recorded eight narrations for the Thomas the Tank Engine short story series. These special recordings will have an accompanying booklet. When you hear Thomas whistle, Turn the page. Thomas goes fishing. Thomas the tank engine had his own branch line. It was his reward for helping James the red engine. The trucks had pushed James off the rails and Thomas had helped to rescue him. Thomas was very proud of his branch line. Every day he puffed up and down with his two coaches, Annie and Clarabel. He always looked forward to something special, the river. As he rumbled over the bridge, he would see people fishing down below. He often wanted to stay and watch, but his driver always said, No, what would the fat controller say if we were late? 
Thomas still thought it would be lovely to stop by the river and do some fishing. Every time Thomas met another engine, he would say, I want to fish. But they all gave the same answer. Engines don't go fishing. And that's just what James said as he passed Thomas that day. One day, Thomas stopped as usual to take him water at the station by the river. Then he saw a big painted notice. It read, out of order. Thomas was very thirsty. The driver had an idea. They could get water from the river. They found a bucket and some rope and went to the bridge. Then the driver let the bucket down into the water. The bucket was old and had five holes, so they had to fill it, pull it up and empty it into Thomas's tank as quickly as they could, again and again. At last they were finished. That's good, that's good, puffed Thomas, as he started off again with Annie and Clarabel running happily behind. This series will only be available in the UK later in the year. up in a moment. Paul sings to Jerry Marsden. Hello Jerry, hello Pauline, hello Eamon Andrew. A movie has a young boy asking, Daddy, what's a beetle? Still to come. My dear friend, George Harrison. And this is Yoko Ono's Hell in Paradise. Next on Yesterday and Today. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the show's As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages. That's facebook.com slash yesterday and today podcast or facebook.com slash third men. Or you could head to society 6 
facebook.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. All right. We'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see oh, me. For God's sake.